Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful Friday, ready for the weekend. But before we get to that, I have some news that I do want to get into and talk about as we wrap up the week. I'm going to be getting into Christopher Nolan potentially not being a part of Warner Brothers anymore. Is he going to take his films to another studio? Some new information on the brand new sequel to Halloween some major release date changes for the first half of 2021 and more. But the first thing that I want to get into, as I do every Friday, as I started with The Mandalorian, and now I'm starting with WandaVision, that is, of course, the weekly recap of the latest edition from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, WandaVision. And this week was the third episode. And after getting two episodes last week, we're starting off the one-per-week episode now with Marvel Studios. And after last week and kind of all the craziness that ensued with with going into the 50s and the 60s and getting into this mystery but also kind of paying homage to these late sitcoms we continued that with this third episode of WandaVision and this is going to be a non-spoiler review on Monday I'll be doing a spoiler review so make sure that if you leave any comments they're non-spoiler so for anybody that hasn't watched it today and will watch it during the weekend they get a little bit of a chance to catch up before we get into spoilers on Monday but right now this is going to be a non-spoiler review and overall what I thought of episode 3 going into the 70s coming off of what I thought were great episodes to kind of kick off this new show this new era of the Marvel Cinematic Universe I thought it was good I thought it continued what we loved in the first two episodes but I think when it came to the sitcom aspect what I loved about in the first two I think kind of lagged a little bit with this episode I think when people are intrigued with this show it's the fact that you're peeling back this mystery layer of what's really going on in this town. Nothing's what it seems. And what the first two episodes did so well is they, those were kind of side issues to enjoying, I think, the overall 30-minute episode of that sitcom. The fact that it was a standalone episode, it had a standalone storyline with these little connectivities of what the overall mystery is, but you still enjoyed what was coming out of those two episodes. This one, I thought I was more intrigued by the mystery, which you want to keep people attached to that because that's the hook that you have people coming back with each and every single week. But I thought the actual standalone episode itself was a little bit weaker on the sitcom level than the last two weeks. And that might just be my preference. I think 70 sitcoms, I'm not really as attuned to those as I am with, say, the Dick Van Dyke show or Bewitched or I Dream of Genie. I knew I watched a lot more of those shows in my childhood. So... I just think overall the standalone issue of the sitcom episode was a little bit weaker than the last two, but when you get into the actual mystery surrounding this, and again, no spoilers whatsoever, I thought they did a really good job of continuing to peel back the layers and not giving you a whole lot of answers, a lot more questions, but what I heard when people and critics were watching these first three episodes was the first three act is this first act to a three act structure, which is normal storytelling, and this third episode definitely leaves it on a cliffhanger that has it be 
kind of resemble the first act of this major story that we're going to be getting in these next six episodes. So I really liked where they left everything off, where they're going to keep us kind of going and kind of getting people to to guess. And I think that's the great thing about having a weekly episode is you get a lot of theories. You get to talk with a lot of people what you think is going to happen down the line. And this episode is certainly going to have people doing that. And also the performances I thought were incredible. I thought Elizabeth Olsen continues to just knock this out of the park the way that she's just able to play into that sitcom mantra seriously enough where it's not just kind of a ripoff or a goofy kind of, of spinoff of it or a goofy, a goofy ripoff. It really feels authentic and genuine. And the same thing for, for Paul Bettany as well where he's just kind of this underrated comedian that I never really thought he was and he just is able to kind of riff off of Elizabeth Olsen really really well and their chemistry definitely shows and another major star out of this episode was Tanya Parrish who plays Geraldine in the show and she and and Elizabeth Olsen have great chemistry as well and she does great with the comedic timing so I thought the performances were just consistent with everything that I've seen coming out of the of this show so far and I think that the technical aspect of it with the the visuals and after kind of seeing the last two weeks where everything was more of a practical effects and on high wire i believe this was definitely more of visual effects cgi and you can definitely see it a little bit but i thought they did a really good job with it i love the technicolor so overall i thought it was a good episode continues forth what we're going to be getting in this show and again it's just i think it's just about uh, hooking people right now and, and going forth with it and i've been getting a lot of questions over the last week or so when talking about WandaVision and people asking, should I get into it? Is this, should I make it worth my time? Is it good enough to watch? And overall, I do say it is definitely worth it. I will put this caveat out there though, is that if you don't want to keep up with the weekly format, I think when all is said and done, and I don't know what's going to happen in the next in the next episodes, I have no idea. And I think everybody, even critics, are caught up. So nobody other than the creators, Kevin Feige, they're the only ones that know what's going to happen with the rest of the show. But I think when you watch it overall and you watch all nine episodes, it'll be a much clearer story and you'll be able to binge the whole thing and get an idea of what the story is and have fun with it instead of kind of having this mystery lingering all, 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 all over you and if you don't like what you see at first and you don't want to kind of wait seven days to watch it then I think if just sitting there and binge watching in one whole day is better than waiting every single week so I definitely would have a caveat of saying I think waiting till the very end to binge watch this whole thing once the finale comes out but I think overall what they're doing it's different it's new and I think for majority of the people including myself it's hooking us enough where we're enjoying what we're seeing from the sitcom aspect but again the hook is keeping us involved with the mystery and they really are peeling back layers of this and making you guess and making you think well what's what's going to come when and and how is this possible or how is this happening and i think as long as that hook sustains itself i think people will stay in the show but they need to do in the next few episodes i think if this does act like a typical 
three-act structure, and we're seeing it done with these three episodes being Act 1, the next two, or next three being Act 2, and the last two or three being Act 3, I think we definitely need to get more involved with the story and not just this sitcom standalone aspect while having the little mystery on the side. I think this next these next three episodes need to find a balance of both of those at the same time, and I think you'll keep people intrigued because I think right now you'll have people hooked, but expand on the hook now. Get people, reel them in, and keep them invested. And so it'll be interesting to see what they do with the next three episodes on their list because the next three, I think, are going to follow the same level of sitcom format because Kevin Feige, the creators, have said that the first six episodes or they're going to be episodes that pay homage to from the 50s to the 2000s and those from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 2000s modern day, those are six episodes entirely. So I think we have three more to go with this format. Again, I don't know anything, but I'm just guessing and theorizing right now. And then the last three are going to be the epic MCU format that we're accustomed to seeing where I think we'll see more of what's going on get more answers. So there's going to be more of this sitcom format that we're going to get. But if you're intrigued, I think you're going to, it's on a sustainable path right now. I think it's going to be like that for the remainder of the show, or at least for the next three episodes. But I liked what I saw with this episode. Sitcom, actual, the actual sitcom episode was not as good as the first two, but I think with the mixture of the mystery, it was a good enough episode that it kept me intrigued for what's to come down the line. So what did you guys think about this episode? If you have seen it, again, non-spoilers. I don't want, again, people to, if they haven't seen it yet, to have a few days before we get into spoilers. So what did you guys think about this non-spoiler? Let me know and leave your thoughts below. Now to get on to some movie news that is going on around the world of Hollywood. And the first one that I want to talk about is the major release date changes that are happening around Hollywood. And they really came fast and furious last night where we had just a plethora of studios announce their their new release dates and kind of giving an inkling of where we're at right now. And I think with a new presidential administration in right now, we kind of have an eye of, of where this pandemic is really going. And I think the response from the government, we're seeing that trickle down to Hollywood right now. And they're responding in just, and it seems like right now a lot of studios are moving their major films from the first quarter and second quarter of 2021 to the last two of this year into the back half into the late summer, early fall. And the first domino to really come down, which it was the first one to come down when this whole pandemic started late last or in March of 2020. It was the 25th edition of the James Bond franchise. No time to die is moving from its April 2nd release date to October 8th. Then we got a whole slew of release date changes. First off from Disney in which they announced some release date changes and also just some flat out 
release dates that weren't announced beforehand. And the first one was the release date for the brand new Guillermo del Toro film, Nightmare Alley. It is coming off of his award-winning film from 2017, Shape of Water, and it's set for a limited release on December 3rd, right around award season next year, which, again, because of Guillermo del Toro's Oscar past, it sets him up nicely for a continuation, potentially, of what he did after The Shape of Water. And then we got the announcement that Antlers would be moving from the first half of this year to Halloween time of 2021. The Kingsman will be moving from March 12th to August 20th of 2021. And then we got the announcement of a lot of Sony films that will be moving to the back half of this year. The first one was Edgar Wright's brand new film, Last Night in Soho, with Thomas and McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy. It'll be moving from April 23rd to October 22nd. Then you have Peter Rabbit 2, which will be set for June 11th of this year. We have the Ghostbusters sequel, Ghostbusters Afterlife, moving to November 11th. The brand new Cinderella film with Camille Cabello, which is not from Disney, but from Sony, moving to July 16th, moving off of its February release date, and then moving to a February 11, 2022 release date is the, the first Uncharted film with Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg, and then moving for a third or a second consecutive time this year is Morbius, moving from October 8th of 2021 to January 21st of 2022, which makes a lot of sense because for Sony, I don't think they want to be competing up against the 25th edition of the James Bond franchise. So again, a lot of release date changes that happened, but not a whole lot of surprises that were in store. When it comes to No Time to Die, from a lot of reports that were coming out in the last year or so, we knew that the film was probably going to be moved to either October or November of this year, which I'm surprised they didn't move it to November, but I think with the releases of Eternals on the table, and you also have uh, Mission Impossible coming out as well, I don't think they wanted to compete in that release window. I think they want to make sure that No Time to Die has a little bit more time and has a a release date change and a release date window that it's able to have some kind of success, even if it's some modest success in this day and age right now. And I think overall with a lot of these release dates, again, it's just, I think, adapting to the fact that no films or no major films are probably going to be coming out in the first half of this year. It sounds like from everything we're hearing from, from scientists and doctors, the earliest we could get back up and running is at least by the second half of the summer in July or August or latest could be early fall with all the vaccinations that are going out right now. So I think Hollywood is going to respond to that. And I wouldn't be surprised if we hear down the line because we heard Disney announce these release date changes, but they were mostly for their 20th Century Studios films. But what about films such as Black Widow or Cruella in May or even even though it's in late July, early August, Jungle Cruise with The Rock and Emily Blunt. What are those major films going to do? Are they going to move to 2022? Are they going to move to the to the fall of this year? What's going to happen? So I think especially with Black Widow and Cruella, those could be films that I wouldn't be shocked if they move sometime down the line. And I know a few friends of mine that are saying that, well, maybe Fast and Furious 9 could be the film that takes us and builds up the, the theater distribution 
arena business again. And that could very well be the case, but I think Top Gun and In the Heights in early June or late June, early July could be the films that kind of kick this off because if anything that has been learned about the theatrical distribution landscape from 2020 is that you can have a big film come out for a weekend or two and that's great, but you need consistency within the release date schedule. For theaters, it's not so much that we have a great big film coming out and you expect people to come in and that's it. And even though a lot of people on a lot of theaters aren't going to make a whole lot of money, when it comes to the ramp up when people are able to go back to theaters, don't expect a whole lot of money to be coming out there. But the thing that theaters need to kind of kickstart themselves once again is having consistency, is making sure that they have multiple releases coming down the pipeline. It's not just one big movie. It's not just having tended out for a few weeks and then basically having a slew of mid to lower end budget films that aren't going to get people to come out to the theaters if they feel safe enough to do so and they feel safe enough to do to, to go out to the theater. So they need to have a string of films like a No Time That I come out one weekend and then two weekends later you have Black Widow and then two weekends later you have Fast and Furious 9 and then two weekends later you have an Uncharted or a Morbius come out. That's the consistency that the movie theaters need. And again, once that consistency starts, you're not going to see a whole lot money come in. You might see a, a modest level of income come in better than what we've seen so far, but you're not going to see, I believe, a Black Widow make a billion dollars. If it makes 600 to $700 million, that considered in the, in the day and age that we're living in right now, that could be considered a success right now. But it's just about jump-starting, lighting a fuse for this 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 industry right now and i think the consistency is where you can see that spark light it up a little bit and then it'll snowball from there so i think that's where the studios and the exhibition chains are looking at right now is to develop that and for some theaters it's not going to be enough and it's more about running out of time and keeping their doors open no matter what and again you can have a big film come out and keep the doors open for a few weeks but that's not going to sustain you for two to three months from that release date. So at once the consistency starts, which I think a lot of people are hoping is in July or August, then that's when we can start talking about the theatrical distribution, getting back up and running, convincing ourselves that we can we don't have to worry about these theatrical films moving any more of their release dates because even when coming up with the most anticipated list for a lot of people I think they they do it with a lot of asterisks on each and every one of those films because before we know it we could have a Morbius moving to 2022 or an Uncharted moving to the next year as well so there's just still a whole lot of questions, but I think, again, the light is at the end of the tunnel, and I think for a lot of studios, I think they're hoping that this is the last time they have to make these changes, and I think we're going to see still see minor changes happen throughout the next few years just because this whole pandemic has really caused a ripple effect for everybody, obviously, before the release date schedule for productions for major blockbusters that might need a little bit more window space than they have right now. It's going to have ramifications for the future, but I think when we come to these 
major, major changes that we don't know if this is going to be the last time they move or not. I think studios are hoping that this is the last major shift that they have to make in the immediate future right now. So fingers crossed for that right now. This is no surprise. This was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. And it all just came down like an avalanche last night. So the big one is obviously No Time to Die moving from April to October, which again, I'm bummed about, but at the same time, it is what it is and it needs to happen. But I think when all is said and done, I think when you look at these release date changes, I think they're going to work for the better. And again, I think for No Time to Die, I would have tried to move it to November, but I can understand again, it, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of wiggle room to for a lot of films right now. So I don't think they want to overlap. And James Bond needs to be a theatrical worldwide hit for the studios to make a whole lot of money. So there's a lot riding on every single Bond film, which is why it's always moving and it isn't going to VOD or some streaming service. There's just too much money on the line for these studios to make with James Bond. But for something like a Last Night in Soho moving to around the Halloween time, especially what I've been hearing about from that new Edgar Wright movie where he's taking risks and it's more of a horror level film than he's accustomed to doing, then I think that could be a really good element for him and a good date for that movie. And the same thing goes for Cinderella. I think moving it to July 16th was a no-brainer, especially when it was supposed to have a release date of February and it hadn't even had started up its marketing campaign yet. You knew that was probably going to move. And Antlers, I think that's a, a really good date for it for October 29th. Scary movie right around the Halloween time. And especially if people feel safe going to the movies, they could want a nice scare going out with friends and family again. So so that could be a, a good space for Antlers. Kingsman moving to the end of the summer. I think that could work for it as well. Ghostbusters moving to November. That's an interesting spot for that movie. We'll see if it works. Again, I just think that November, October is, is stacked as well, that, especially with No Time to Die moving there. That I just think for Ghostbusters, maybe Sony saw that well. If we haven't moved the date, we move it to November and we'll see how it does there. I think it definitely could have been utilized better as a summer movie but we'll see what it does in the the winter movie season because winter movie season over the last few years has done very very well for major blockbusters so we'll see where that can take them but overall what did you guys think about this slew of changes for the release date calendar let me know what you think and leave your thoughts below and the next thing that I want to talk about now is, is staying on the subject of Halloween and October and talking about the new sequel to the hit 2018 film Halloween. And Halloween Kills is the next film that is set to come out, which is set for October 15th of this year when it was supposed to come out in October of last year. But because of COVID, everything got obviously got switched up and it's supposed to come out this year now. And there hasn't been a whole lot of plot details that have come out about this one yet, but the cast and crew of that first film or that rebooted sequel film of 2018 is coming back for this one. It's written, directed once again by David Gordon Green along with Danny McBride, and it's bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis is coming back. You also have uh, all the main players of that 2018 film are coming back for this film. And I'm, I'm wondering, when it comes to horror sequels, 
they're always very difficult to do because once you establish yourself, especially if you're a slasher film and you set the rules and you utilize everything that you can in that first film, when it comes to creating new sequels for these movies is how do you keep it fresh and new and interesting without kind of recycling the things that you did beforehand? And I wondered that with this Halloween trilogy, especially since we're getting this film and another one coming out next year, how are they going to keep things interesting and new and develop because that first film was so so good and kind of brought this rejuvenation back to this franchise after so many years of just bad film after bad film and in a kind of purgatory it lifted itself back up again and i think for these sequels people want to see them do well and from a creative perspective what else are you doing that can kind of utilize some great techniques that you haven't done before and it sounds like the writing staff david gordon green have come up with something interesting and this is coming from empire magazine which did kind of a first look on a whole bunch of movies and when they did one on halloween kills this is what the director had to say about the film and what it will entail in the themes moving forward and this is what he has to say about the movie the movie is about community fear paranoia misinformation and crowded panic green told empire of halloween kills this movie is a great popcorn genre movie and not really any kind of statement but it's strange how things line up it couldn't be more interesting a more interesting time to release a movie like this so hearing those comments i i'm really intrigued for how they're going to incorporate modern day issues into this film and and david gordon green said in that in that statement well well, it wasn't intentional to do that, but just kind of fit. And that's uh, sometimes you could do it when writing a movie. You could do it subconsciously where you want to put these elements in here. And I think for what the first or, or rather the, the Halloween film of 2018 did is I think introduce a lot of these different elements of of paranoia and it, what's real, what isn't real. And I think in the day and age that we live in right now, you're setting up themes that you introduce in that first film that you're continuing to develop in a bigger scale around the whole town while those are really prevalent informational themes that are affecting this country right now with misinformation and paranoia and 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 fear within a lot of people of what's going to happen so i think in the fact that since Lori had to to convince her own family of what was going on with michael myers now the, the Schroeder family has to convince the town of this being, this beast, this monster that is Michael Myers and how he's just kind of haunting everybody. Because the thing with slasher films and in any horror genre films is when you recycle villains and, again, tropes over and over again, it gets tedious. It gets boring. So, again, you have Michael Myers obviously coming back for these next two movies. What else are you going to do to freshen that up again, like I was saying in the beginning of this topic? And this seems like a very interesting way to do that is it's not just the the being itself that's the enemy it's all this other everything else around the community that could be perceived as an evil too where if people are believing lies about michael myers potentially not being real or this didn't happen when it actually did happen and everyone is kind of turning a blind eye to something that can potentially save their lives it could be a real clear and present danger that again is not the actual being that is 
slashing the knife on somebody. So I think this is can definitely be very interesting. I've heard that this film does live up to the hype of that first film, but hopefully it that does happen if we do get this film in 2021 in October. And again, it did so well in October of 2018. It makes sense that this film is coming out in October around Halloween time of this year and hopefully next year as well. And uh, kind of tying both of my storylines of the release date changes of No Time to Die and for Halloween Kills, October is coming in being a pretty stacked month. I mean, when you look at Dune coming out on October 1st, then you have No Time to Die on the 8th. You have The Last Duel competing with Halloween Kills, the film with Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and, and directed by Ridley Scott. You have Snake Eyes. You have Antlers. That could be a very competitive month if everything stays the way that it is, which, again, after my last story, who knows what could happen in just the next few hours alone. So, But I think overall, I think we are going to get this film on October 15th, and I am very excited to see what they do with this film because I was very much intrigued and really liked what I saw with that Halloween movie in 2018 and continuing the the classic film from John Carpenter of 1978. So I'm really excited to see what they do with this film, how they continue the story, how they evolve the characters and set up kind of this end game that we're going to get with, with Halloween ends next year. So it's very exciting and I'm really intrigued to see what they do with this film. What do you guys think about the message coming from Halloween Kills? Talking about community fear, talking about paranoia, and talking about misinformation, as David Gordon Green puts in that statement to Empire. Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts. And moving on from the world of Halloween into a galaxy far, far away, and now I'm going to be talking about the Disney Plus television show Andor, which is going to be a spinoff show based on the character from Rogue One casting Andor, played by Diego Luna, which is now in production. And one of the things that was announced at D23 in 2019 was the fact that both Diego Luna and Alec Tudyk, who played K2SO, would be reappearing in the show and potentially explaining the origin story, per se, about how this robot came into contact or how Cassian Andor came into contact with K2SO. And we learned a little bit of that backstory in Rogue One, but we never got to really see it. So this television show is going to dive into that origin story per se or was going to dive into that origin story until at the investor day in December of 2020 when Kathleen Kennedy kind of gave us more information about Andor and revealed the official title that they were in production, revealed the little sizzle reel, she confirmed a few people that were involved in the cast, but none of them were Alan Tudyk for K2SO. So people were thinking, well, they already announced that character at D23. Maybe they're not, they, they know people know he's already in it, so they don't need to announce it again. Or the second option is potentially he might not be in it at all. And now it's coming from the man himself himself, Alan Tudyk, that apparently he is not in at least this first season, potential first season of Andor. And this is what he had to say according to Collider when that question of being in Andor came up. They're shooting it right now. I'm not in it, but if it stays on the air, stories keep getting told, I'll end up there. So she just kind of went over it just briefly and didn't give a whole lot away. Not that he really apparently knows anything. So I think first off, 
is it a little disappointing that K2SO isn't in this series? Yes. At first, thinking about it, it is sad and unfortunate because, again, we were led to believe that that was going to be the case, but it seemed like over the last year or so, there was a lot of changing of the guards with the show, with Tony Gilroy coming on and officially kind of taking the reins of the show. And I think, again, at first, it's disappointing. I think they're missing out on a huge opportunity because one of the bright spots in many that was Rogue One, a Star Wars story, was the introduction of K2SO. And especially since Rogue One was kind of the first spin-off film that didn't feature the main core characters of the Star Wars saga, not having R2-D2 or C-3PO, even though they cameoed, but they weren't a main points of the of Rogue One and K2SO was kind of introduced as that being that mechanical friend and colleague that they needed at that time period and people were wondering well are we going to like this character how is he going to be what's he going to be like and he turned out to be really kind of the the diamond of the rough the, the the one character that stole the show from everybody else in that film and i think you're missing opportunity at first of not having him in this show when he's so beloved by so many fans however the thing that makes this interesting is that alan tudyk points to the fact that this again could just be more than one season and it's been kind of contradictory that andor might follow in the steps of obi-wan where it might be a limited series but i don't i think andor is going to be multiple seasons and it seems like alan tudyk confirms that and if that turns out to be the case then maybe if people love andor and respond to it positively then we could get more adventures of of Andor with K2SO and see that story develop in many, many seasons to come to the point of what we know them to be in Rogue One when we first meet them. So I think the fact that they might have a multi-seasonal approach to Andor, that maybe they just want to kind of introduce the character on his own, doing his own thing, and then whether it's maybe further down the line in this season or in future seasons, we get introduced to K2SO and kind of see the beginnings of a friendship that was in full blossom when we saw it in Rogue One. So at first, I think it's a little disappointing, but again, if you read more into Alan Tudyk's quotes, and again, it's not a big quote, but it definitely has a lot of meaning in just a few words that he speaks on this with, I definitely think that there's a lot more to it and that either he's in future episodes of, of episode one in the back half of a 12-episode of a season, or we could be getting multiple seasons and either in season two or season three, if it goes on for that long, we get more or the the beginnings of the relationship with K2SO and Andor. So what do you guys think about K2SO not being uh, at least initially in the Andor series? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts. And the final thing that I want to talk about on the Sam Bissell podcast today is the surprising slash unsurprising report from the Wall Street Journal that Christopher Nolan could potentially be moving on from making movies at Warner Brothers. And this comes from an article from the Wall Street Journal where it says, according to the Wall Street Journal, Christopher Nolan is unlikely to work with Warner Brothers again following Warner Media implementing this day and date release plan. Publicly, it hadn't been announced yet if Nolan had a post-tenant project in the works at the studio, but considering how important the director has
has been to Warner Brothers over the years, with most of his movies being critical and or commercial powerhouses. It goes without saying that him leaving would be a huge blow. And this is slash surprising slash unsurprising in the fact that when we heard the news that Warner Brothers was going to put its film slate out, its entire 2021 film slate out, both in theaters and on HBO Max, it sounded like initially that one of the people that was not going to be happy, that didn't that didn't have any films that were affected by this, was Christopher Nolan, who is seen by many and myself to be one of the great filmmakers of the modern era right now, and he is definitely the golden goose of the of the filmmaking tree over at Warner Brothers, and knowing his love and his passion for cinema, for the theatrical experience, he was not going to be happy, and it could very well have meant that they lost Christopher Nolan. And, and then obviously about a week, week and a half later after the initial announcement of the hybrid release format schedule coming out and announcement, Christopher Nolan during a home video kind of press tour for Tenant, he went in, just unabashedly went after Warner Brothers for doing this called HBO Max, the worst streaming service out there, and just really kind of tore into the, the studio and the company that he's not contractually obligated to work with, but the studio that he has had the best relationship with and the only relationship with and just went after them relentlessly and didn't let up for the rest of 2020 when talking about this. So when that came out and you heard that he wasn't happy and he was supporting his filmmakers that weren't happy about this and supported them, getting their money, getting paid for whatever compensation they needed when it seemed like they were going to lose a lot of money, especially on those big budgeted projects like a Wonder Woman 1984 or a Suicide Squad or Godzilla versus Kong or even a Dune right now, and you wondered is he just is he going to continue to make movies with this studio? And it sounds like that is not going to to be the case. And again, I, I it's it's 50 50 for me on this where I put some of the blame on him and then I put no blame on him whatsoever. And the fact that a for for Nolan he as much as I love him and I love his movies and and I'm a big fan of Tenet I'm in a minority I feel like of that movie I think he put it on himself when it seemed like for multiple reports that he wanted his film to be the first film to come out during the pandemic and the fact that he wanted to bring back theaters the theater exhibition and kind of jolt it back to life and be the savior of cinema and it seemed like he forced Warner Brothers hands when you kind of read a lot of the reports and you hear a lot of the rumors where Warner Brothers wanted to wait until at least the fall or Christmas time to put this movie out, but Nolan wanted to come out around the summertime, get people back into the theaters, kind of be this spark for the theatrical distribution exhibition window, and that just isn't what it came to be. Now, it had a lot more theaters open, and it made a lot more money than what Wonder Woman 1984 is making, but again, the caveat there is there were more theaters open. About 60% of theaters are now closed, so there's not a whole lot of money for Wonder Woman to make in this market here and worldwide right now so for for nolan he all due respect he became more part of the problem than the solution for that and it seemed like could have been one of the hands that drove warner brothers to make that decision so i can understand from from his side of the line saying well you know i'm for theaters and 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 i don't know if warner brothers can be trustworthy 
I can understand that. But at the same time, he's got to own up to a little bit of the fact that Warner Brothers might have been pushed to this decision because of that. And I think when if, if Nolan really does decide not to work with Warner Brothers anymore, this isn't the end-all, be-all for, for Christopher Nolan, per se. I think any studio, if you if were a free agent on the market, really is what he is right now. Any studio would take him, and I think he'd have his pick of the litter for what studio he would want to make his next film with. Now, if it would be for a $200 million budget, I don't know about that just because in the day and age that we live in right now, a lot of studios are going to be cutting costs and are going to be putting a lot of costs into COVID-19 protocol. So he might not be able to ask for a $200 million budget or even a $175 million budget. And it's not because they don't want to give it to him. It's the fact that they need to save money and they'd be losing a lot more money than they would be gaining in the market right now. And even over the next few years, when the box office, whenever, again, it has a spark and it kicks back up again, it's going to take a lot more time to get to the heights that we were at just two years ago in 2019. So I think for a lot of studios, it's going to be walking back a lot of the budgets, even on maybe some Marvel films or or, or comic book property films or action films. It's going to cut and you're going to see a lot of budget adjustments happen. So I think for Nolan, it, it'll be easy for him. For Warner Brothers, they're, they're losing a valuable asset. The, again, they're golden goose. They knew that one of the things they could always rely on was a Christopher Nolan. Nolan film that at least over the last few years, a Nolan film was easy money for them and they could really put it in the profit margin from the for themselves and they, they could put it in the black. They can mark it down as a box office success. And again, in a pandemic list world, I think Tenet would have done very well at the box office. I think it would have been more in line with, in, not Inception, I think it would have been more in line with Interstellar and Dunkirk than it would have been with Interstellar or any of the, the Batman movies he did. But I definitely think it would have made a lot of money for the studio and i think they're going to lose out on a high valuable product property and product that they're going to be getting with nolan and that's just one less thing for them to to think about it to have because even with their dc properties their modest box office hits a lot of them haven't been runaway smash behemoths other than aquaman and wonder woman but they haven't had a level of consistency in, in, in their box office success they don't really have a harry potter franchise to lean back on the batman isn't coming until next year at the at the least the earliest so right now they they, they might they don't really have a lot to bank their heads on right now so i think for nolan in that sense of the word he'll be fine he i definitely think he has a, a he has a a hand to play in everything that has led warner brothers to this point but at the same time warner brothers shot themselves in the leg when kind of doing this whole rollout thing and we're still seeing the ramifications for that happen with a lot of the studio kind of trying to make out work out these deals with the talent and the directors and the producers for how much they get with their back-end deals how much do they get with compensation on these films when they don't do out the box office because right now people are going to watch these films at home instead of going to the theaters so you're going to have to compensate for all these stars right now so you're losing a lot more money than gaining it and the way that you kind of alienated your creatives your actors your directors and your studios like legendary not telling them i think really really hurt yourself and hurt you maybe potentially losing nolan so that's a big big loss and we'll see where it goes maybe he does decide to stay maybe wounds heal with time and it doesn't seem like nolan right now is going to be 
making a movie right now. So we'll see where it leads. And, and it's just a matter of time to see if he decides to stay with Warner Brothers or we find out in the next few next year, the next few months that he's making another movie and it's with Universal or even A24. I'll give him I'll give him a Christopher Nolan. But I think Nolan would probably work in one of the the major big studios if they'll have him. Like I think the best bet to think of Nolan going to is Universal at this particular moment in in time because I don't see him going with Disney. He could go to 20th Century or and he could go there. He could go to Searchlight. But I think the big bet to go with right now, if he were to leave Warner Brothers, is to see him go to Universal. Yes, to, to NBC Universal. So we'll see where this leads. We'll see where this goes. But a major loss for Warner Brothers if this does turn out to be the case. So what do you guys think about this? Let me know and leave your thoughts. But with that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the Sam Cell Podcast. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channels for more content. You can check me out on Spotify. Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and so much more. And guys, just so you know real quick, I did start up my own YouTube channel, so you can also find me on YouTube. I just put up my first interview at a press junket for our friend, which you can check out on both the podcast format or on video on my YouTube. I interviewed the director, Gabriella Calperthway. She was fantastic, and you can also find my review of our friend on the podcast as well if you go to, to Spotify, Apple Podcast, all those that I just named. So definitely give that a look out. Definitely give the YouTube link a check out when you can and check out the interview. It's at it's the Sam Bissell Podcast. You can look it up. You'll find my logo. And it's the only video there. So I appreciate if you guys can spread the word about it and, and appreciate all the feedback when you guys check it out. So definitely make sure to check those out as well. But don't just check out my show as well. Also check out the, the other amazing shows that are on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, such as You Mad Bro. It's the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on, on a weekly basis. You can also check out Goal Driven Professionals, which is geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. You also got The Daily Grind, which is a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, which gives you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals and so many more amazing shows like Wrestle Attic Radio, Fredzelmania Podcast, and, and you can also check out Midnight Showing. And you can find all of these on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. You can also find on social media, Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, on Twitter, at Real Ambiguous. And you can also check out Canopy Treehouse to use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance after checking out the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, be sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Basel Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also you can find me on Facebook at Sam Bissell. And you can find the official Sam Bissell Podcast on Facebook at Sam Bissell Podcast. And you can also check me out on all those sites as well. So, guys, once again, thank you so much for tuning in and have a wonderful weekend. And until next time, keep on screening.